Chapter 2, Part 2 of The Children of the Abbey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Children of the Abbey by Regina Maria Roche. Chapter 2, Part 2. The next morning, Lady Malvina brought her work into her sister's dressing room. At last, Fitzalan entered. He was attacked by Augusta for his long absence, which he excused by pleading regimental business. After trifling some time with her, he prevailed on her to sit down to the harpsichord, and then glancing at Malvina, he gave her the promised signal. Her conscious eyes were instantly bent to the ground. A crimson glow was suddenly succeeded by a deadly paleness. Her head sunk upon her bosom, and her agitation must have excited suspicions had it been perceived. But Fitzalan purposely bent over her sister, and thus gave her an opportunity of retiring unnoticed from the room. As soon as she had regained a little composure, she called her maid, and, after receiving many promises of secrecy, unfolded to her the whole affair. It was long past the midnight hour ere Malvina would attempt repairing to the chapel. When she at last rose for that purpose, she trembled universally. A kind of horror chilled her heart. She began to fear she was about doing wrong, and hesitated. But when she reflected on the noble generosity of Fitzalan, and that she herself had precipitated him into the measure they were about taking, her hesitation was over, and leaning on her maid, she stole through the winding galleries, and lightly descending the stairs, entered the long hall, which terminated in a dark, arched passage that opened into the chapel. This was a wild and gloomy structure, retaining everywhere vestiges of that monkish superstition which had erected it, Beneath were the vaults which contained the ancestors of the Earl of Dunreath, whose deeds and titles were enumerated on Gothic monuments, their dust-covered banners waving around in sullen dignity to the rude gale, which found admittance through the broken windows. The light which the maid held produced deep shadows that heightened the solemnity of the place. "'They are not here!' said Malvina, casting her fearful eyes around. She went to the door, which opened into a thick wood, but here she only heard the breeze rustling amongst the trees. She turned from it, and sinking upon the steps of the altar, gave way to an agony of tears and lamentations. A low murmur reached her ear. She started up. The chapel door was gently pushed open, and Fitzalan entered with the chaplain. They had been watching in the wood for the appearance of light. Malvina was supported to the altar, and a few minutes made her the wife of Fitzalan. She had not the courage, till within a day or two previous to the regiment's departure from Scotland, to acquaint the Earl with her marriage. The Countess already knew it, through the means of Malvina's woman, who was a creature of her own. Lady Dunreath exulted at the prospect of Malvina's ruin. It at once gratified the malevolence of her soul, 
and the avaricious desire she had of increasing her own daughter's fortune. She had, besides, another reason to rejoice at it. This was the attachment Lady Augusta had formed for Fitzalan, which, her mother feared, would have precipitated her into a step as imprudent as her sister's, had she not been beforehand with her. This fear the impetuous passions of Lady Augusta naturally excited. She really loved Fitzalan. A degree of frantic rage possessed her at his marriage. She cursed her sister in the bitterness of her heart, and joined with Lady Dunreath in working up the Earl's naturally austere and violent passions into such a paroxysm of fury and resentment that he at last solemnly refused forgiveness to Malvina and bid her never more appear in his presence. She now began to tread the thorny path of life, and though her guide was tender and affectionate, nothing could allay her anguish for having involved him in difficulties which his noble spirit could ill brook or struggle against. The first year of their union she had a son, who was called after her father, Oscar Dunreath. The four years that succeeded his birth were passed in wretchedness that baffles description. At the expiration of this period, their debts were so increased, Fitzalan was compelled to sell out on half pay. Lady Malvina now expected an addition to her family. Her situation, she hoped, would move her father's heart and resolved to essay everything which afforded the smallest prospect of obtaining comfort for her husband and his babes, she prevailed on him, therefore, to carry her to Scotland. They lodged at a peasant's in the neighbourhood of the abbey. He informed them the Earl's infirmities were daily increasing, and that Lady Dunreath had just celebrated her daughter's marriage with the Marquis of Rosaline. This nobleman had passionately admired Lady Malvina, an admiration the Countess always wished transferred to her daughter. On the marriage of Malvina he went abroad. His passion was conquered ere he returned to Scotland, and he disdained not the overtures made for his alliance from the Abbey. His favourite propensities, avarice and pride, were indeed gratified by the possession of the Earl of Dunreath's sole heiress. The day after her arrival, Lady Malvina sent little Oscar, with the old peasant, to the Abbey. Oscar was a perfect cherubim. The bloom of opening flowers, unsullied beauty, softness and sweetest innocence he wore, and looked like nature in the world's first spring. Lady Malvina gave him a letter for the Earl, in which, after pathetically describing her situation, she besought him to let the uplifted hands of innocence plead her cause. The peasant watched till the hour came for Lady Dunreath to go out in her carriage, as was her daily custom. He then desired to be conducted to the Earl, and was accordingly ushered into his presence. He found him alone, and briefly informed him of his errand. The Earl frowned and looked agitated, but did not by any means express that displeasure which the peasant had expected, feeling for himself indeed had lately softened his heart. He was unhappy. His wife and daughter had attained the completion of their wishes, and no longer paid him the attention his age required. He refused, however, to accept the letter. Little Oscar, 
who had been gazing on him from the moment he entered the apartment, now ran forward. Gently stroking his hand, he smiled in his face and exclaimed, "'Ah, do pray take poor Mamma's letter?' The Earl involuntarily took it. As he read, the muscles of his face began to work, and a tear dropped from him. "'Poor Mamma cries too,' said Oscar, upon whose hand the tear fell. "'Why did your Mamma send you to me?' said the Earl. "'Because she said,' cried Oscar, "'that you were my grandpapa, and she bids me love you, and teaches me every day to pray for you.' "'Heaven bless you, my lovely prattler!' exclaimed the earl with sudden emotion, patting his head as he spoke. At this moment Lady Dunreath rushed into the apartment. One of her favourites had followed her to relate the scene that was going forward within it, and she had returned with all possible expedition to counteract any dangerous impression that might be made upon the earl's mind. Rage inflamed her countenance. The earl knew the violence of her temper. He was unequal to contention, and hastily motioned for the peasant to retire with the child. The account of his reception excited the most flattering hopes in the bosom of his mother. She counted the tedious hours in expectation of a kind summons to the abbey, but no such summons came. The next morning the child was sent to it, but the porter refused him admittance by the express command of the earl, he said. Frightened at his rudeness, the child returned weeping to his mother, whose blasted expectations wrung her heart with agony, and tears and lamentations broke from her. The evening was far advanced, when suddenly her features brightened. "'I will go,' cried she, starting up. "'I will again try to melt his obduracy. Oh, and with what lowliness should a child bend before an offended parent! Oh, with what fortitude!' What patience should a wife, a mother, try to overcome difficulties which she is conscious of having precipitated the objects of her tenderest affections into? The night was dark and tempestuous. She would not suffer Fitzalan to attend her, but proceeded to the abbey, leaning on the peasant's arm. She would not be repulsed at the door, but forced her way into the hall. Here, Lady Dunreath met her, and with mingled pride and cruelty refused her access to her father, declaring it was by his desire she did so. "'Let me see him but for a moment,' said the lovely suppliant, clasping her white and emaciated hands together. "'By all that is tender in humanity, I beseech you to grant my request.' "'Turn this frantic woman from the abbey,' said the implacable Lady Dunreath trembling with passion. At your peril suffer her to continue here. The peace of your lord is too precious to be disturbed by her exclamations. The imperious order was instantly obeyed, though, as Cordelia says, it was a night when one would not have turned an enemy's dog from the door. The rain poured in torrents, the sea roared with awful violence, and the wind roared through the wood, as if it would tear up the trees by their roots. The peasant charitably flung his plaid over Malvina. She moved mechanically along. Her senses appeared quite stupefied. Fitzalan watched for her at the door. She rushed into his extended arms and fainted. 
It was long ere she showed any symptoms of returning life. Fitzalan wept over her in the anguish and distraction of his soul, and scarcely could he forbear execrating the being who had so grievously afflicted her gentle spirit. By degrees she revived, and, as she pressed him feebly to her breast, exclaimed, Final stroke is given. I have been turned from my father's door. The cottage in which they lodged afforded but few of the necessaries, and none of the comforts of life, such, at least, as they had been accustomed to. In Malvina's present situation, Fitzalan dreaded the loss of her life, should they continue in their present abode. But whither could he take her wanderer, as he was upon the face of the earth? At length the faithful Edwin occurred to his recollection. His house, he was confident, would afford them a comfortable asylum, where Lady Malvina would experience all that tenderness and care her situation demanded. He immediately set about procuring a conveyance, and the following morning Malvina bid a last adieu to Scotland. Lady Dunreath, in the meantime, suffered torture. After she had seen Malvina turned from the abbey, she returned to her apartment. It was furnished with the most luxurious elegance, yet could she not rest within it. Conscience already told her, if Malvina died, she must consider herself her murderer. Her pale and woe-worn image seemed still before her. A cold terror oppressed her heart, which the horrors of the night augmented. The tempest shook the battlements of the abbey, and the winds, which howled through the galleries, seemed like the last moans of some wandering spirit of the pile bewailing the fate of one of its fairest daughters. To cruelty and ingratitude, Lady Dunreath had added deceit. Her lord was yielding to the solicitations of his child, when she counteracted his intentions by a tale of falsehood. The visions of the night were also dreadful. Malvina appeared expiring before her, and the late Lady Dunreath, by her bedside, reproaching her barbarity, Oh, cruel, the ghastly figure seemed to say, is it you whom I fostered in my bosom that have done this deed, driven forth my child, a forlorn and wretched wanderer? Oh, conscience, how awful are thy terrors! Thou art the vice-regent of heaven, and dost anticipate its vengeance ere the final hour of retribution arrives. Guilt may be triumphant, but never, never can be happy. It finds no shield against thy stings and arrows. The heart thou smitest bleeds in every pore and sighs amidst gaiety and splendour. The unfortunate travellers were welcomed with the truest hospitality by the grateful Edwin. He had married, soon after his return from America, a young girl to whom, from his earliest youth, he was attached. His parents died soon after his union, and the whole of their little patrimony devolved to him, soothed and attended with the utmost tenderness and respect. Fitzalan hoped Lady Malvina would hear again her health and peace. He intended, after her recovery, to endeavour to be put on full pay, and trusted he should prevail on her to continue at the farm. At length the hour came in which she gave a daughter to his arms. From the beginning of her illness the people about her were alarmed. 
too soon was it proved their alarms were well founded. She lived after the birth of her infant but a few minutes, and died embracing her husband and blessing his children. Fitzalan's feelings cannot well be described. They were at first too much for reason, and he continued some time in perfect stupefaction. When he regained his sensibility, his grief was not outrageous. It was that deep, still sorrow which fastens on the heart and cannot vent itself in tears or lamentations. He sat with calmness by the bed where the beautiful remains of Malvina lay. He gazed without shrinking on her pale face, which death, as if in pity to his feelings, had not disfigured. He kissed her cold lips, continually exclaiming, Oh, had we never met, she might still have been living. His language was something like that of a poet of her own country. We modest crimson-tipped flower, I met thee in a luckless hour. It was when he saw them about removing her that all the tempest of his grief broke forth. Oh, how impossible to describe the anguish of the poor widower's heart when he returned from seeing his Malvina laid in her last receptacle. He shut himself up in the room where she had expired and ordered no one to approach him. He threw himself upon the bed. He laid his cheek upon her pillow. He grasped it to his bosom. He wetted it with tears because she had breathed upon it. Oh, how still, how dreary, how desolate did all appear around him. And shall this desolation never be more enlightened, he exclaimed, by the soft music of Malvina's voice? Shall these eyes never more be cheered by beholding her angelic face? Exhausted by his feelings, he sunk into a slumber. He dreamt of Malvina, and thought she lay beside him. He awoke with sudden ecstasy, and under the strong impression of the dream, stretched out his arms to enfold her. Alas! All was empty void. He started up. He groaned in the bitterness of his soul. He traversed the room with a distracted pace. He sat him down in a little window, from whence he could view the spire of the church, now glistening in the moonbeams, by which she was interred. Deep, still and profound, cried he, is now the sleep of my Malvina. The voice of love cannot awake her from it, nor does she now dream of her midnight mourner. The cold breeze of night blew upon his forehead, but he heeded it not. His whole soul was full of Malvina, whom torturing fancy presented to his view in the habiliments of the grave. And is this emaciated form, this pale face, he exclaimed, as if he had really seen her, all that remains of elegance and beauty, once unequalled. A native sense of religion alone checked the transports of his grief. That sweet, that sacred power, which pours balm upon the wounds of sorrow, and saves its children from despair. That power whispered to his heart, a patient submission to the will of heaven was the surest means he could attain of again rejoining his Malvina. She was interred in the village churchyard. At the head of her grave a stone was placed, 
on which was rudely cut, Malvina Fitzalan, alike lovely and unfortunate. Fitzalan would not permit her empty title to be on it. She is buried, he said, as the wife of a wretched soldier, not as the daughter of a wealthy peer. She had requested her infant might be called after her own mother. Her request was sacred to Fitzalan, and it was baptised by the united names of Amanda Malvina. Mrs. Edwin was then nursing her first girl, but she sent it out and took the infant of Fitzalan in its place to her bosom. The money, which Fitzalan had procured by disposing of his commission, was now nearly exhausted, but his mind was too enervated to allow him to think of any project for future support. Lady Malvina was deceased two months, when a nobleman came into the neighbourhood, with whom Fitzalan had once been intimately acquainted. The acquaintance was now renewed, and Fitzalan's appearance, with the little history of his misfortunes, so much affected and interested his friend that, without solicitation, he procured him a company in a regiment, then stationed in England. Thus did Fitzalan again enter into active life, but his spirits were broken and his constitution injured. Four years he continued in the army, when, pining to have his children, all that now remained of a woman he adored, under his own care, he obtained, through the interest of his friend, leave to sell out. Oscar was then eight, and Amanda four. The delighted father, as he held them to his heart, wept over them tears of mingled pain and pleasure. He had seen in Devonshire, where he was quartered for some time, a little romantic solitude, quite adapted to his taste and finances. He proposed for it, and soon became its proprietor. Hither he carried his children, much against the inclinations of the Edwins, who loved them as their own. Two excellent schools in the neighbourhood, gave them the usual advantages of genteel education. But as they were only day scholars, the improvement, or rather forming of their morals, was the pleasing task of their father. To his assiduous care too they were indebted for the rapid progress they made in their studies, and for the graceful simplicity of their manners. They rewarded his care, and grew up as amiable and lovely as his fondest wishes could desire. As Oscar advanced in life, his father began to experience new cares, for he had not the power of putting him in the way of making any provision for himself. A military life was what Oscar appeared anxious for. He had early conceived a predilection for it, from hearing his father speak of the services he had seen. But though he possessed quite the spirit of a hero, he had the truest tenderness the most engaging softness of disposition. His temper was, indeed, at once mild, artless, and affectionate. He was about eighteen when the proprietor of the estate, on which his father held his farm, died, and his heir, a colonel in the army, immediately came down from London to take formal possession. He soon became acquainted with Fitzalan, who, in the course of conversation, one day expressed the anxiety he suffered on his son's account. The colonel said he was a fine youth, and it was a pity he was not provided for. 
He left Devonshire, however, shortly after this, without appearing in the least interested about him. Fitzalan's heart was oppressed with anxiety. He could not purchase for his son without depriving himself of support. With the nobleman who had formerly served him so essentially, he had kept up no intercourse since he quitted the army, but he frequently heard of him and was told he had become quite a man of the world, which was an implication of his having lost all feeling. An application to him, therefore, he feared, would be unavailing, and he felt too proud to subject himself to a repulse. From this disquietude, he was unexpectedly relieved by a letter from the Earl of Cherbury, his yet kind friend, informing him he had procured an ensigncy for Oscar in Colonel Belgrave's regiment, which he considered a very fortunate circumstance, as the Colonel, he was confident, from personally knowing the young gentleman, would render him every service in his power. The Earl chided Fitzalan for never having kept up as correspondence with him, assured him he had never forgotten the friendship of their earlier years, and that he had gladly seized the first opportunity which offered of serving him in the person of his son, which opportunity he was indebted to Colonel Belgrave for. Fitzalan's soul was filled with gratitude and rapture. He immediately wrote to the Earl and the Colonel in terms expressive of his feelings. Colonel Belgrave received his thanks as if he had really deserved them, but this was not by any means the case. He was a man devoid of sensibility, and had never once thought of serving Fitzalan or his son. His mentioning them was merely accidental. In a large company, of which the Earl of Cherbury was one, the discourse happened to turn on the Dunreath family, and by degrees led to Fitzalan, who was severally blamed and pitied for his connection with it. The subject was, in the opinion of Colonel Belgrave, so apropos, he could not forbear describing his present situation and inquietude about his son, who, he said he fancied, must, like a second Cincinnatus, take the ploughshare instead of the sword. Lord Charbury lost no part of his discourse, though immersed in politics and other intricate concerns, he yet retained, and was ready to obey, the dictates of humanity, particularly when they did not interfere with his own interests. He therefore directly conceived the design of serving his old friend. Oscar soon quitted Devonshire after his appointment, and brought a letter from his father to the colonel, in which he was strongly recommended to his protection, as one unskilled in the ways of men. And now all Fitzalan's care devolved upon Amanda, and most amply did she recompense it. To the improvement of her genius, the cultivation of her talents, the promotion of her father's happiness seemed her first incentive. Without him no amusement was enjoyed, without him no study entered upon. He was her friend, guardian and protector, and no language can express, no heart, except a paternal one, conceive, the rapture he felt at seeing a creature grow under his forming hand. So fair that what seemed fair in all the world seemed now mean, or in her contained. Some years had elapsed since Oscar's departure, ere Colonel Belgrave returned into their neighbourhood. He came soon after his nuptials had been celebrated in Ireland with a lady of that country, 
whom Oscar's letters described as possessing every mental and personal charm which could please or captivate the heart. Colonel Belgrave came unaccompanied by his fair bride. Fitzalan, who believed him his benefactor, and consequently regarded him as a friend, still thinking it was through his means Lord Chowbury had served him, immediately waited upon him and invited him to his house. The invitation, after some time, was accepted, but had he imagined what an attraction the house contained, he would not have long hesitated about entering it. He was a man, indeed, of the most depraved principles, and an object he admired, no tie or situation, however sacred, could guard from his pursuit. Amanda was too much a child when he was last in the country to attract his observation. He had, therefore, no idea that the blossom he then so carelessly overlooked had since expanded into such beauty. How great, then, was his rapture and surprise when Fitzalan led into the room where he had received him a tall, elegantly formed girl, whose rosy cheeks were dimpled with the softest smile of complacence, and whose fine blue eyes beamed with modesty and gratitude upon him. He instantly marked her for his prey, and blessed his lucky stars, which had inspired Fitzalan with the idea of his being his benefactor, since that would give him an easier access to the house than he could otherwise have hoped for. From this time he became almost an inmate of it, except when he chose to contrive little parties at his own for Amanda. He took every opportunity that offered, without observation, to try to ingratiate himself in her favour. Those opportunities the unsuspecting temper of Fitzalan allowed to be frequent. He would as soon have trusted Amanda to the care of Belgrave as to that of her brother, and never, therefore, prevented her walking out with him when he desired it, or receiving him in the morning, while he himself was absent about the affairs of his farm. Delighted to think the conversation or talents of his daughter, for Amanda frequently sung and played for the colonel, could contribute to the amusement of his friend. Amanda innocently increased his flame by the attention she paid, which she considered but a just tribute of gratitude for his services. She delighted in talking to him of her dear Oscar, and often mentioned his lady, but was surprised to find he always waived the latter subject. Belgrave could not long restrain the impetuosity of his passions. The situation of Fitzalan, which he knew to be a distressed one, would, he fancied, forward his designs on his daughter, and what those designs were, he, by degrees, in a retired walk one day, unfolded to Amanda. At first she did not perfectly understand him, but when, with increased audacity, he explained himself more fully, horror, indignation and surprise took possession of her breast, and, yielding to their feelings, she turned and fled to the house, as if from a monster. Belgrave was provoked and mortified. The softness of her manners had tempted him to believe he was not indifferent to her, and that she would prove an easy conquest. Poor Amanda would not appear in the presence of her father till she had, in some degree, regained composure, as she feared the smallest intimation of the affair might occasion fatal consequences. As she sat with him, 
a letter was brought her. She could not think Belgrave would have the effrontery to write, and opened it, supposing it came from some acquaintance in the neighbourhood. How great was the shock she sustained on finding it from him. Having thrown off the mask, he determined no longer to assume any disguise. Her paleness and confusion alarmed her father, and he instantly demanded the cause of her agitation. She found longer concealment was impossible, and, throwing herself at her father's feet, besought him, as she put the letter into his hands, to restrain his passion. When he perused it, he raised her up, and commanded her, as she valued his love or happiness, to inform him of every particular relative to the insult she had received. She obeyed, though terrified to behold her father trembling with emotion. When she concluded, he tenderly embraced her, and, bidding her confine herself to the house, rose and took down his hat. It was easy to guess whither he was going. Her terror increased, and in a voice scarcely articulate, she besought him not to risk his safety. He commanded her silence, with a sternness never before assumed. His manner awed her, but, when she saw him leaving the room, her feelings could no longer be controlled. She rushed after him, and flinging her arms around his neck, fainted on it. In this situation the unhappy father was compelled to leave her to the care of a maid, lest her pathetic remonstrances should delay the vengeance he resolved to take on a wretch who had meditated a deed of such atrocity against his peace. But Belgrave was not to be found. Scarcely, however, had Fitzalan returned to his half-distracted daughter, ere a letter was brought him from the wretch, in which he made the most degrading proposals, and bade Fitzalan beware how he answered them, as his situation had put him entirely in his power. This was a fatal truth. Fitzalan had been tempted to make a large addition to his farm, from an idea of turning the little money he possessed to advantage, but he was more ignorant of agriculture than he had imagined, and this ignorance, joined to his own integrity of heart, rendered him the dupe of some designing wretches in his neighbourhood. His whole stock dwindled away in unprofitable experiments, and he was now considerably in arrears with Belgrave. The ungenerous advantage he strove to take of his situation increased, if possible, his indignation, and again he sought him, but still without success. Belgrave soon found no temptation of prosperity would prevail on the father or daughter to accede to his wishes. He therefore resolved to try whether the pressure of adversity would render them more complying, and left the country, having first ordered his steward to proceed directly against Vince Allen. The consequence of this order was an immediate execution on his effects, and, but for the assistance of a good-natured farmer, he would have been arrested. By his means, and under favour of night, he and Amanda set out for London. They arrived there in safety, and retired to obscure lodgings. In this hour of distress, Fitzalan conquered all false pride, and wrote to Lord Charbury, entreating him to procure some employment which would relieve his present distressing situation. He cautiously concealed everything relative to Belgrave, 
he could not bear that it should be known that he had ever been degraded by his infamous proposals. Oscar's safety, too, he knew depended on his secrecy, as he was well convinced no idea of danger or elevation of rank would secure the wretch from his fury who had meditated so great an injury against his sister. He had the mortification of having the letter he sent to Lord Charbury returned, as his lordship was then absent from town, nor was he expected for some months, having gone on an excursion of pleasure to France. Some of these months had lingered away in all the horrors of anxiety and distress, when Fitzalan formed the resolution of sending Amanda into Wales, whose health had considerably suffered from the complicated uneasiness and terror she experienced on her own and her father's account. Belgrave had traced the fugitives, and though Fitzalan was guarded against all the stratagems he used to have him arrested, he found means to have letters conveyed to Amanda, full of base solicitations and insolent declarations, that the rigour he treated her father with was quite against his feelings, and should instantly be withdrawn if she acceded to the proposals he made for her. But though Fitzalan had determined to send Amanda into Wales, with whom could he trust his heart's best treasure? At last the son of the worthy farmer, who had assisted him in his journey to London, occurred to his remembrance. He came often to town, and always called on Fitzalan. The young man, the moment it was proposed, expressed the greatest readiness to attend Miss Fitzalan. As every precaution was necessary, her father made her take the name of Dunford and travel in the mail-coach for the greater security. He divided the contents of his purse with her, and recommending this lovely and most beloved child to the protection of heaven, saw her depart with mingled pain and pleasure promising to give her the earliest intelligence of Lord Charbury's arrival in town, which, he supposed, would fix his future destiny. Previous to her departure, he wrote to the Edwins, informing them of her intended visit, and also her change of name for the present. This latter circumstance, which was not satisfactorily accounted for, excited their warmest curiosity, and not thinking it proper to ask Amanda to gratify it, they, to use their own words, sifted her companion, who hesitated not to inform them of the indignities she had suffered from Colonel Belgrave, which were well known about his neighbourhood. End of chapter 2, part 2